This episode is brought to you by Heidi. Imagine kicking back while a HIPAA compliant AI scribe writes your soap notes for free. Yes, you heard us right. Heidi is free. I'm Dr. Tom, Heidi's CEO and founder, and we started Heidi to stop clinicians wasting their life on clinical documentation. Heidi transforms your consult babble into crisp, clear soap notes, personalizing itself with every edit. One day, Heidi will be your AI resident, looking through research, explaining plans, and doing anything you don't want to. If you currently pay for an AI scribe in your practice, you should swap to Heidi. We'll even credit you for anything you've already paid. Dive into the description for the link and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Sign up and watch Heidi work its magic all for free because you've got better things to do. On today's episode, we have Jamie Fleischner of Set for Life Insurance, a sponsor of the podcast, and we discuss what's new in the world of disability insurance. So for all the residents and fellows, this is actually critical information. So definitely stay tuned. We also discuss what the right amount of insurance is, group versus individual policies, and what clauses to make sure are in your policy. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's show, we have Jamie Fleischner of Set for Life Insurance. Early in her life and career, Jamie Fleischner learned the importance of disability and life insurance when she was the primary caretaker for her mother, who unfortunately eventually passed away while waiting for an organ transplant. Since then, Jamie has used her experience and passion to help her clients protect themselves from life's biggest risks. In 1999, she opened the doors to Set for Life Insurance and is still there today. She's a Life Underwriter Training Council Fellow, Chartered Life Underwriter, and Chartered Financial Consultant. She served on the board for 10 years and as President of the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, Denver, and from 2001 to 2002, was the youngest president in that association's 100-plus year history. Jamie Fleischner, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Let's start out with what's new and sexy in the world of long-term disability. Well, something that's relatively new that's come about in the world of disability insurance, especially for physicians, is something called Guaranteed Standard Issue, or GSI. And what this is, it's a program specifically for medical residents and fellows who purchase during residency or within 90 days of finishing residency, and it's a disability policy with no medical questions asked. So there are a couple of things to note about the policy. So first of all, not having medical questions asked is a very big deal because anybody who's ever gone through the process of disability insurance will tell you it can be an arduous process. About a third to half of all applications either get rated, declined, or some kind of medical exclusion. So being able to get a policy, no medical questions asked, and then still being able to increase that policy in the future up to $15,000 a month is a really big deal. The policy still has all of the same features as all of the other disability policies, and we'll get into some of those later in more depth own occupation, residual rider, increase options, rates are fixed and guaranteed, discounted. And there are most of the major carriers such as Guardian, Emeritus, Principal Standard, Mass Mutual have these policies. But there's a couple of things to note. If you're looking for a GSI policy, first of all, it may or may not already be established in your hospital. To have it in the hospital, 
it has to be through an approved broker. So the companies are very careful who they will allow to offer these policies. They want it to be with somebody who has a lot of experience and writes a lot of volume. So that way they can make sure they are covering their risk properly. Can I assume that Set for Life is one of those places where you can get it? Absolutely. Yes. We have GSI available at numerous places around the country, including Mayo Clinic, Washu Barnes Hospital, New York Presbyterian, University of Rochester, University of Chicago. So at a lot of the major hospitals around the country, we have those available. So it has to be through the hospital. For instance, like if you find out that they don't have it at your hospital, but someone reaches out to you individually, would they be able to get it? No. So if you're at a rural hospital in Pennsylvania that does not have an approved GSI policy, it would not be available to you. If you're currently a resident at Mayo Clinic, where it's already established, it would be available. Now, if you're at the rural hospital in Pennsylvania and you're saying, hey, I really want to have this for myself and my fellow residents, contact us. We might be able to get it established so we could get it set up. So you've got a bunch of actuaries sitting there and basically being like, we're going to sell people that are the least likely to need disability insurance, right? We're going to give them the cheapest because we know they're less likely to utilize it. So then what's the incentive here for, and I know this is, so this is a a podcast is supposed to be for physicians to help be the best versions of themselves. And we're kind of getting into the weeds about, you know, risk and disability insurance, but, but I just don't understand, like, why would they suddenly open the pool to people that are higher risk? Like, what's the incentive there? Well, the reason they're doing it this way, and some of them are testing the market. So there were several of these set up in the past, and the brokers who were doing it didn't do a great job. They didn't write enough volume of business, and the company pulled it. So in order to maintain these programs, there needs to be a large volume of people who get the policy. So it's not the type of thing you come to me and I say, oh, you've, you know, you have a history of cancer. Go ahead and take this policy. And your spouse who works there, oh, they're healthy. Go get a different policy because that causes adverse risk selection. So they want to get a large enough volume to be able to spread the risk. And so that's how they do it. So if they're not getting the large enough volume, they're just going to pull the offer. And they also know that just taking the pool of people in residency and fellowship training to begin with have a certain amount of risk as a large group. It's kind of like, I guess, when, you know, written into Obamacare, when you could stay on your parents' insurance until you were 27, right? That wasn't some big risk for the insurance companies because they knew that like the difference between an 18-year-old and a 21-year-old and a 24-year-old isn't really that much risk-wise. And because all of them are going to be staying on their parents, or a lot of them are going to be staying on their parents' insurance. We're really not taking a big risk. So I guess it's a similar phenomenon, but you just need that huge number of people in order to be able to pool the risk appropriately. Yeah. So the insurance companies are used to working with physicians and medical residents. The large proportion of their books are already in that market space. So they're probably at least half to 60% of their block of business is already in the physician market space, like marketplace. So they're very familiar with that risk. There are a couple of caveats. So if you first go and apply through medical underwriting and you either get rated or declined, you are no longer eligible to get a GSI policy. So that's one of the things that they work with. So if you go to another broker and you say, 
sure, I'll go through the process. And they put an exclusion for mental health or on your right elbow, you're out of the, you can no longer get the GSI policy. So you always get the GSI policy first. So that's one of the ways that's sort of a stopgap. All of the GSI policies all have, have a two-year mental nervous limitation. So they will only cover benefits up to 24 months for psychological types of illnesses. That's already true on a lot of disability policies anyway. Everyone in California has it. Anesthesiologists, emergency physicians, all of them have that anyway. So I don't think that's a big deal. But again, it's another way for them to take care of the risk. So you had mentioned some other, and I apologize, I interrupted you because I was just so surprised about this phenomenon that they're offering. Any other caveats that, that we should be aware of if we're applying for GSI? Not necessarily. So again, you want to make sure you're going with somebody who's approved and able to do it because there are agents and brokers out there saying, oh, yeah, sure, I can do it. And then you find out the hard way you can't get it. So or so you want to make sure you're with somebody who's approved to do it. The other thing is you can only go up to in the future up to 15,000 per month benefit. So if you're in a high income specialty and you're going to need more than 15,000 a month benefit. So to put it in perspective, if your income's going to be more than four or five hundred thousand dollars in the future, the GSI may not be enough to support you throughout your career. In those circumstances, what I say is get a smaller amount of GSI, also go through underwriting with another company, and you can aggregate your benefits in the future up to thirty thousand per month benefit. So that's another consideration. Kind of like what I did with my uh, life insurance, right? I have two policies. I have a twenty-year. And a 30 year. And, you know, because my kids are only going to need me to be an income generator for so long, you know, so you can kind of stack these policies together. Exactly. And so that spreads your risk, too. But again, get the GSI policy first, because even if you say you're totally healthy and you go get another policy and you don't re realize that they're going to put an exclusion on your right thumb, all of a sudden you're no longer able to get the GSI policy. You don't qualify. So GSI first, if your hospital participates, and then you can always add something onto it later. Actually, I had a, had a question about that, about adding stuff on later, because, you know, we're always taught to get the disability insurance early, right? Get it when you're healthy and cheap. And for the reasons that you're saying, because we don't want them to be able to put these other exclusions on it, right, for injuries or illnesses that might crop up as we get older. But let's say we have a policy for when we're residents, which doesn't cover much because we're not making much income, right? And then as we become attendings, we want to increase the policy. Is there any difference between what the insurance company might do if we want to add on to an existing policy versus get a new policy? The benefit of getting it while you're in residency is the residency discounts tend to be the steepest. So it's usually a 10% discount. And the companies allow all future increases to still be at that discounted rate. So not only are you getting your initial policy discounted at that 10%, but three, five years later, when you go to increase it, you're still getting a resident discount on the increase, even though you're no longer in training. So over the course of your career, it's going to save you 10% on your premiums. Now, let's say you just get a GSI. You don't have time to think about it. Five years later, you say, OK, I'm maxed out. I have that 15000 I need more benefit. You can go out and apply at that time. When you apply at that time, the policy will be priced based on your criteria then. Where are you living? How old are you? Do you have any medical issues? Et cetera. So you're five years older. It's going to be a little bit more expensive. So the price doesn't grow with you. 
No, the price is fixed and guaranteed based on you are at the time that you purchase the policy. Okay. But then when you go to increase it, clearly the price will increase, but you're saying with proportionally less. Am I understanding that? So your initial policy is locked in. It's baked. It's locked in based on where you are when you buy it. When you increase, it's a separate policy. So that is based on where you are at the time that you increase it. So let's so for instance, let's say you get a policy, you're doing internal medicine and you're 30 years old. You get a policy during residency, you get the resident benefits, you pay $100 a month. And I'm just using an example. Then you go and do fellowship and you go into interventional cardiology and you know, five years later, you come out of fellowship and you want to buy more benefit. At that time, now you're 35 years old, that policy might be priced differently because you're in a subspecialty that may be uh, a little bit more risky because you're doing procedures, interventional cardiology. And so it's going to be a little bit more expensive, but you'll still have that resident discount on the policy. Okay. So then what is that resident discount? It's just a 10% flat discount. Okay. So it's just 10% less of what it would have been had you not already been paying into it. Let's say you just say, you know, forget it. I'm just, I'm too busy during residency. Somebody contacts me. They're 35 years old. They're the interventional cardiologist. Now they want to get a policy. Well, they're not a resident, so they can't get the resident discount. So immediately that policy is going to be 10% more expensive than had they bought it during residency, even though they're the same age, same person, same age. If they had bought the initial policy during residency, that future increase option would be priced at the resident rate. To get the most out of your career as a physician, you need an employment contract that supports you. Unfortunately, most contracts do not initially include everything you need to be successful. Employers draft contracts with their best interests in mind, but the terms that benefit your employer are rarely as valuable to you. Before signing an employment contract, you should always make sure your salary, bonuses, paid time off, and other terms are fair. Resolve is the one and only place you can get live salary data, so you know exactly what's happening in your specialty at all times. The best part of the data is that it's verified from real physician contracts. With access to data on what physicians like you are earning, you know when you're being underpaid and can confidently ask for what you deserve. In addition to providing data, they're the number one firm specializing in physician employment contracts. They work with every specialty nationwide. At Resolve, you get connected with an experienced attorney who will work with you one-on-one -on -one to ensure you sign with confidence. Your attorney will take your priorities into account, address concerns, make suggestions, and help you strategize for any negotiation. They can even negotiate with an employer on your behalf. So whether you're a seasoned attending or just finished training, Resolve is here to support you in every step of the way. Visit resolve.com to learn more and discover how to sign your ideal employment contract. Resolve, your trusted partner for physician contract review, negotiations, and salary data. Some of us have disability insurance through our practices or hospitals, right? That's a group policy. And then we can buy individual policies on top of this. So what's the difference between a group and an individual policy? So there's quite a few differences. So a group policy, when you sign up for an employer, oftentimes you're required to sign up for the group policy. And the reason you're required is employers must have a certain level of participation. So kind of like the GSI, they need to get the volume. So do the employer-sponsored plan. 
So they usually need like 70 to 80 percent participation. So usually when you get, you sign up for all your benefits, you just check a box and you sign up for the group policy. Now, because they can't individually select and they can't ask everybody medical questions, it's typically not going to be as comprehensive. So most group policies will say you have to be totally disabled, not working or something of that nature to be able to trigger a claim. Whereas an individual policy has what's called bone occupation, where it says if you're sick or injured and you can't work in your specialty, you're going to get paid benefits even if you can do another specialty or occupation. So something happens, you know, maybe you have pretty severe rheumatoid arthritis and you just can't do your specialty. On an individual policy, you're going to get paid benefits even if maybe you can do some consulting from home, do some research, teaching, something of that nature. You're still going to get paid your benefits. The group policy says, nope, you're working. We're not going to, in any capacity, we're not going to pay your benefits. Number two, the employer is paying the premium. Since the employer is paying the premium, your benefits are taxable to you. The individual policy, you're paying your premium with after-tax dollars. Your benefits are tax-free. Now, you get your new job or when you're an attending and you're thinking about disability insurance, what the companies will do is they'll look at your whole situation. What is your income? How much group benefits do you have? And that will determine how much you may supplement. So there's a limit on how much disability insurance you can get. Because what they don't want you to do is go out and buy 20000 a month benefit, have a huge group policy, and you can go out on claim and make a heck of a lot more than if you were working. There's no incentive to work. There is a limit on how much you can purchase. So you had said earlier that you can kind of stack individual policies, right? You start with one policy, and then if, you know, if you're a higher earner and you want to add another policy on top of it, you can do that. Can you do that? And, and clearly, you can do that with group and individual. You just said that. Now, I get these letters weekly, daily from the AMA about their group disability policy. Can I take my company's group disability policy and then also get the AMA's group disability policy? Can you stack policies like that? It will depend on, they're still going to have to coordinate all the benefits. So you can't just, if you already have a group policy and maybe you have an individual or you don't, you can't, you may be able to stack, but again, they're going to ask all of, about all of your disability insurance. So whenever you go to buy more disability insurance, they always are going to coordinate. So you can't just go and buy a ton here, sign up for this here. It all coordinates. Got it. So they may or may not allow you to buy it. And it really depends on how those individual policies work. It's not like you're going to buy it and then find out after you make a claim that like, well, we're not paying you because they're paying you. Yeah. And a lot of group policies will, they might back off and say, oh, you have a bunch of individual. We may not pay you. An individual policy will always pay regardless if you have a group policy or you have workers comp or any other types of benefits. The other thing about a group policy is most group policies have a limit how much they're going to pay. So usually they'll say, we'll cover 60% of your income up to a maximum of 10000 a month or 15000 a month. So the higher your income is, the less replacement value you have. So it's really more intended to cover rank and file employees as opposed to really high income earners like physicians. So, you know, again, you're making $500,000. Your group policy may only cover up to 10000 a month. That's taxable. If you became totally disabled, you're only going to have 7000 So some people will supplement on top of that. Typically, 
you can the amount of disability insurance you can cover is about up to 80% of your take home pay. So when you're looking at individual because it's tax free and the group is taxable, you can get about up to 80% approximately. The higher the income, the lower the replacement value is just because of taxes. But that's about what you can cover. This is what makes sense in my head. And tell me if it doesn't. You know, one of my concerns, I tend to catastrophize, right? This is just where my brain goes, right? Like if I get an injury where I can't practice ENT anymore, like I might still be able to get income in another way. Very unlikely to be able to make the same amount of money, but at least I'll be able to work. So if I've got an own occupation, it'll be able to get me at least closer to where I was. Whereas if I get some devastating injury, like let's say I have a stroke and I can't work at all and my, my like a massive stroke and I'm still alive, but at this point, like I can't contribute anything financially to my family. And in fact, they're having to take care of me. So now, you know, if I have a group policy and that's it, sounds like in that second scenario, I triggered the group policy. In the first scenario, I don't. But if I have own occupation on top of the group policy, in the first scenario, it only triggers that bit of supplemental income. And if there's something catastrophic, then both can come into play. Yes. And that's exactly right. So in your scenario, doing ENT, you're doing procedures. So you're using your hands and you're doing a lot of, you're using your hands and you're doing intricate types of procedures. Rarely using our feet. Yeah, exactly. But in your scenario, if something happens, again, I, I've had a lot of clients with rheumatoid arthritis or they get wrist surgeries or they have some kind of problems with their hands as they age or neck problems. A lot of them, you know, a lot of times that kind of thing happens. They can file, in your case, you'd be able to file a claim. Anything you're earning from doing your podcast or side gigs, or if you did research or you're able to Zoom, they're not going to reduce your benefit. That's yours to keep. So they're not going to say, hey, slow down with the, the podcast, slow down with the side gig. They can't do that. As long as you can't do ENT, you're going to get paid your benefits. Now, the group policy, they're going to say, oh, well, we heard you're doing something else. We, you know, you're able to earn an income. We don't have to pay you. Got it. So I think that combination of the two, at least to me, makes the most sense. And if you do have, you know, if you do have the ability to continue working, maybe when you're deciding how much of a policy to get, you don't need to replace all of your income, but you should replace at least a significant portion of it with own occupation. If you do say, listen, if I get injured, I still do plan on working in a different capacity. But generally, you know, as physicians, especially in the higher earning specialties, it's you'd be really hard pressed to find something that can make you close to what you're making. Exactly. And one other consideration, um, a lot of people are not working for the same employer their whole career. So they sometimes move around or they move around the country. And so another reason to have an individual policy is it's portable. It will go with you throughout your career. So let's say you leave your current employer that has a group policy and you want to start your own practice, or maybe you go to a smaller practice where they don't have a group policy. The problem is if you don't have an individual policy and you have a change in health where you can't get your own insurance, you're kind of out of luck. So a lot, you don't want to get into a position where you say, I need to stay with my employer to be able to maintain and retain my benefits. So it really keeps you in the driver's seat. Like we do with health insurance. Exactly. So a lot of people, a lot of people get themselves into that situation. So if you do have an individual policy that's portable, 
it gives you more flexibility if you ever want to leave or change or start your own practice. Have you seen any surprising disability exclusions? Like someone is examined and loves, you know, whatever it is that they have to go through to get disability insurance. And then, you know, either that person ends up being surprised or you end up being surprised. Like whether it's someone that you've helped, you know, a colleague, some of the more surprising things that where a physician might hear and be like, whoa, I didn't even know that was something that could exclude me. So the biggest or most typical exclusions that the companies usually have are for mental health and for back. So a lot of times people, they just go to a back, you know, chiropractor to just kind of, you know, get a get something done by a chiropractor. That always throws up a red flag. And the insurance company always puts an exclusion on that. And people get so frustrated. They say, I just went once to get a massage or so. I do tell people, if you ever want to go see a chiropractor, just pay cash, use a pseudonym. You don't need to have a paper trail because a chiropractor will get the information and say, oh, insurance, I better make it sound like this person has all kinds of problems. So they're going to get paid. And it just puts us on a really bad path. We should do an episode on chiropractic in a bit and, uh, you know, maybe a little while down the road. And for those not familiar with it, definitely read the Wikipedia entry on chiropractic. It'll let you know that, like, really what's going on there. But yes, I see what you're saying. Like they, cause they, they want to get paid just like we do. So they might embellish a little, some of the things, the terminology to make it so they do get paid and then you're hosed. And that's where we come in and say, we need to get a letter of clarification. So you need to go see your regular, your internist or somebody who can attest that you do not have any back problems. And, you know, so we have to untangle that. So that's one that happens often. And so if, again, you're going to go see a chiropractor, pay cash, use a pseudonym, okay. they'll put it through your insurance. Like, well, right. We're not perjuring ourselves or anything like that. But yes, just get a massage. And the same thing goes also sometimes with mental health. Sometimes people are going through a tough period. They're going through a divorce or their parent dies or something and they go see a counselor. If, you're, if you've seen a counselor and you tell the company, then they're going to put an exclusion on the policy for mental health, which is really frustrating to a lot of people. People say, if I hadn't gone to the counselor, then I'd be at more risk. And I agree. Again, we're dealing with actuaries like it's math. You know, and then the last, you know, a lot of women, if they're getting fertility, oftentimes they put pregnancy exclusions on the policy. And a lot of people say, I just froze my eggs. Why did they exclude pregnancy? The company looks at it and says, well, you're probably going to get IVF. That's going to be a higher risk. And so those are the ones that can be also very, very frustrating. High risk for disability. Meaning like, people freeze their eggs and then they decide to get pregnant when they're in their 40s and they can be higher risk pregnancies and they're more likely to go out and claim. So that's the way the company looks at it. So these are the kinds of conversations that sometimes we can alleviate some of that stress ahead of time. All of that just. It sucks. I mean, the first one, right, like you're saying, you can be evaluated by a real doctor and then they can say, listen, this person has no back problems, like subluxations aren't real. But for the second two, right, if you need help, get help. But all the more reason for someone to, you know, as you said, with the GSI, just get stuff in the books sooner. And also, it's not a reason to not get help. Right. If you need it, you need it. But just that that wouldn't be something you can claim later for disability. Interesting. A lot to chew on, a lot to digest here. And so just we've got a little more time. So I just want to talk a little more about some of the intricacies of disability insurance 
don't know, things that you might want to mention, like cost of living adjustment or fixed costs versus graduated costs, a little more information. So the most important part of the contract is that definition of disability, because if you don't have a good definition of disability, the company may not even pay your claim. That's why the own occupation is such a, is so important, especially if you're going to be in a real like a surgical specialty or something that's very niched because you want to make sure the company is covering you if you can't do that. You don't want to be on the whim of an insurance company saying you're really smart. We think you can do X, Y or Z. So that's why and that's why you have to be a little bit careful of some of those association policies and some of the group policies. Some of them have own occupation for two years and then thereafter as long as you're not working. So you have to really read the fine print on those. So they market themselves as being true on occupation. However, they're really true on occupation for two years. That's not even enough time to go and retrain in, a, in another specialty. Again, read the fine print. Couple of other things that you want to make sure are on an individual policy. Another one that I always put on the policy is called residual or partial disability. So own occupation is how you, if you're totally disabled, you can't do your specialty, you're getting paid your full benefit. We've had so many people who've had partial disability claims. You're still working in your specialty, but on a limited basis. So maybe you actually do have that back problem and you have some back soreness and you can't work on a full-time basis. You only need a 15% or more loss of income to trigger a claim. And then regard, depending on the amount of loss of income, that percentage will pay that percentage of your claim. So they look on a month-to-month -month basis. So let's say you're getting chemotherapy. The first month, you have a 30% loss of income. You get 30% of your benefit. The next month, maybe you're more sick. You have a 60% loss of income. You receive 60% of your benefit. Once you hit 75% or more, you're totally disabled. We've also had people, like I had mentioned, rheumatoid arthritis. They've been working, working, working as they get progressively worse. They get more benefit and then eventually they get the full benefit. When you say percent of income, what is that figure based on? So at the time of claim, so let's say you're making $10,000 per month just to make it easy. And again, you have to go through chemotherapy. There's always, there's typically a 90 day waiting period. So from the date of diagnosis, that's how long you have to wait to get paid. But they're going to look at what's the loss of income. So let's say, you know, three months in, your income went down to 8,000 a month because you're sick and you're getting treatment, you would get 20% of your benefit. No, no, but what I mean is like some of us, we might make 10,000 one month, 8,000 the next, 20,000 the next, right? So some of our income, we're, you know, we're based on productivity and our productivity changes. So are they looking at the last 12 months, 24 months, six months? What, what are they looking at when they're deciding this? So they're gonna look at from the time of claim and if you're based on productivity, then they could also look on average hours worked. So whenever somebody contacts me and says, I got diagnosed with something or I was injured, I say immediately keep track of hours worked and income. So because it may not necessarily be income in some circumstances, because oftentimes there's a delay. So everything you did fourth quarter last year, you're now getting paid on now because sometimes there's a lag. So in that circumstance, they're just going to look at hours worked and they say, OK, your average billable rate is, you know, 300 an hour. Your hours went down by this amount. And so they'll look at the average. They have ways to formulate it. But that's a really important writer to have on the policy because most of our clients that have gone on claim, they don't want to be on claim. They're still trying to work. They're doing what they can 
to maintain their practice or to still be able to work, or they may not be totally out. So you don't want to feel like it's all or nothing. So that's, I think, other than the own occupation, the residual writer is the most important writer. Then you're getting, and then the other one that we had mentioned before, the ability to increase it in the future increase options. And every company, they call them different things. They have them a little bit differently, but they mean the same thing. They allow you to buy more in the future, no medical questions asked. So if you're a woman and you're pregnant, they don't have to know about it. You decided to jump out of airplanes or do risky behavior, they don't need to know about it. They don't, they can't, the only thing they can ask you is financial. So that's really important. You can get more benefit, only financial questions asked. And then there's also an inflation writer on the policy. Now, a lot of people confuse a cost of living inflation writer with an automatic increase writer. People think, oh, I'm buying a policy. I want it to keep up with inflation. The cost of living writer only takes place after you've been on claim for one year. So when you buy your policy, if you buy 5000 a month benefit, that's fixed. So if you don't go on claim for 10 years, you're going to have $5,000 a month benefit. Every year you're on claim, it would go up by 3% compound. I typically recommend a cost of living writer for people who are 40 or younger. As if you're buying your policy after the age of 40, it becomes pretty expensive. And again, by that time, you might already pay down some debt, have some other assets. Maybe you don't need it on the policy. And then also, like I've been doing this for 30 years. I've got clients that are now in their 50s and they're saying, you know what? The kids are out of the house. I've got a couple years left. You know, I want to cut my policy back. At that time, we trim. The first thing to go is the cost of living writer. We also might change it to 180-day waiting period. They've got enough money and savings. And then maybe we trim the benefit period from age 65 to 10 years or five years. So you don't have to just drop the policy. There's a way to sort of gradually phase out of your disability policy as you get close to retirement. Yeah, as you need it less and less because you you insure what you can't self-insure against. And so if you have the savings to like hold yourself over for 180 days, it doesn't make sense to pay someone else to assume that risk when you can just do it yourself. So most people say, well, when can I drop the policy? When you're able to self-insure. So if you are 55 and you have enough and your assets to take care of yourself and you're just working for fun, fine. When you've achieved FIRE, yes. Financial independence, retire early, yeah. Correct. Right. You also might be 55 and have that aching back and say, I'm going to be getting a back surgery soon. Maybe I don't drop my disability policy. There's that too. So it's kind of one of those things that we assess. But yeah, once you've achieved financial independence, you don't need to insure it necessarily anymore because you can self-insure. Unless you've got, as you said, a claim coming up and you've been paying into it all this time, in which case it doesn't make sense to drop it. Jamie Fleischner of Set for Life, where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do or how you can help them? So the best way is just to go to our website, setforlifeinsurance.com, S-E-T-F-O-R-L-I-F-E, insurance, all spelled out, dot com. We have a ton of information on there. You can request a quote. So if you're interested in looking into it or if you want to contact us, our contact information's on there. Also, if you've had a policy for several years and you think, am I really getting the best deal? Do I have the right discounts? Is it set up properly? Please go ahead and contact us. I don't necessarily recommend replacing something unless it's really in your best interest. And one other thing I did, I don't think I mentioned is the way we work is a little bit differently than a lot of other people in the industry. We work as independent brokers. So we're not beholden to any insurance company. We work on behalf of the client. So when the client contacts us, 
we spreadsheet everything and we shop it around. So what we might recommend for you might be something totally different than somebody else with different criteria. And we spreadsheet it and are and show everything that's available to you. And so that's a little bit different versus an agent who works for a company and says, this is the best product. May not have shopped it around. Fantastic. Well, Jamie Fleischner, setforlifeinsurance.com. Thank you so much for your expertise and for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks again from Heidi. Elevate your practice with a free AI scribe, zero cost, HIPAA compliant, and time saving. Ready to swap? We've got you covered for past AI scribe expenses. Head to HeidiHealth.com, get started, and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.